from the UK, broadcasting around the world. Around the world. You're listening to the Mike Drop Club, hosted by Douglas Hamandiche. Message received. Message received. You do not need to know what you need. What you need. Just engage with the podcast feed. Just engage with the podcast feed. Providing weekly insights into cool stuff we've read, saw, did, or heard about what made us say, wow, eureka, damn, nothing is off limits. If it motivates and inspires you to reach your goals, then it shall be discussed. Featuring guest interviews from high performers and people of influence and weekly awards for the best mic drop moment. This podcast is guaranteed to leave you pumped up for the week ahead. Don't just live life, make life boom. Hi, everybody, it's Doug Sam DJ for another episode of the Mic Drop Club today. I'm super, super happy. I got Reese Thomas in the house coming down to spend some time with us to share his knowledge, share his experiences when it comes to mental health. For those who don't know, Reese Thomas is not only an inspirational speaker, he's a one-to-one mentor, a competition-ready ex-rugby athlete. So this is a guy that not only has taken his um, professional career to the zenith, he's somebody that has endured his own personal struggles when it comes to physical and mental health. So with no further ado, Reese Thomas, how are you doing? I'm so well. Thank you, Douglas, for the introduction, brother. So uh, I'm glad to be here today. I mean, it's been a long time coming. Uh, got to meet you a few months back at an event and uh, seen you a few times since, but it's, uh, it's good to finally get in the room with you, boy. Uh, indeed so, indeed so, long time coming. As soon as you spoke, for those who don't know, um, Reese does a lot of uh, motivational guest speaking events uh, and we did meet up at one of these events in, uh, sponsored by Inspired, so we must big up Inspired here at this point. Um, and st- as soon as he opened his mouth and started to articulate his journey, he, he liked to shock the audience in terms of he gives it to you raw, undiluted, in a way that... Um, really allows you to then connect with him as a human being. Because so many times when we talk about motivation and people's stories, they leave out the the real meat, as it were, and you're just left with the vegetables. Reese is not somebody like that. So I want you to really engage with his message. His message is one of hope, inspiration, and um, I, I hope, inspiration, and I would say courage more than anything else to, 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 to endure over over and above all life obstacles, okay? So, Reese, just t- talk to us about your journey, you know, in terms of how did mental health even come to being something that you thought about coming from professional rugby? Yeah, thanks, Douglas, for, for that intro. Um, yeah, man, it was, it's been, you know, it was such an unexpected journey, um, having gone from the heights of um, international rugby been a 10-year professional, um, you know, without its its issues, you know, uh, you know, I had a, quite a turbulent career, shall we say, um, mostly driven from attitude issues and uh, a lot of ego, a lot of, you know, a lot of pride, false pride, but, um, but it was, a, a, you know, a fantastic ego-driven experience, um, which, you know, 
led to a lot of lows, but it also led to a hell of a lot of highs. And eventually it all came crashing down um, when I had a heart attack in the gym whilst playing uh, for a team in Wales called the Scarlets. I literally was just in the gym, had a huge heart attack. And from that experience, it left me, well, not very well at all. I was very lucky to survive the heart attack. I'd, uh, when I'd come around from the operation, I'd had a quadruple bypass. And just like that, literally overnight, my career was, was over in a heartbeat. And um, literally, and you know, that was the beginning of a huge amount of struggle for me because like not, not, not only now is my health bad, but that physical battle in the short term uh, over the next few months turned out to become a real mental battle for me, um, which was something I didn't expect. You know, I, I was riddled with um, anxiety about my health, about dying, but also having huge panic attacks that came from absolutely nowhere. I didn't even know what anxiety or panic attack was. And all of a sudden, on the back end of this traumatic experience and, and this operation that I had, and the recovery, um, it kind of took me on this mad journey. But like most men, you know, Douglas, I struggled to to speak about how I felt. You know, I was fearful. I was scared. I had a lot of guilt and shame for my past. And it was kind of all hit me at once, as well as that, obviously, that transition from the game to post-rugby post was something mm. I wasn't prepared for. I think not many people are. But that athlete transition was something that I really struggled with. And um, it led me down a really dark path. You've hit, you've hit so many key, key points. Hey, yeah. what should I say? You talked about shame. You talked about fear. Mm. You know, in mental health, they, they do say that shame is the lowest form of existence that anyone can be in. Oh, yeah. And all other emotional states um, are above the, sh the state of shame. So you re you reach rock bottom. Oh. You're, you're riddled with, with shame and there's fear. And this is a journey not out of your own choosing. Yeah. Okay. Something must have sparked in you. Well, I mean... That process was such a challenge. And then it kind of, it didn't stop there. You know, as I was recovering, I discovered, you know, I discovered that my, my health was actually deteriorating pretty rapidly. At the same time, my health was deteriorating. Like I said, my mental health wasn't great. I wasn't expressing, uh, like most men, we, you know, I kind of locked myself down, didn't want help. Um, it was, you know, even though my, my ex-wife at the time was really, you know, I had a good, I had a good family basis. I had a lot of support from my help, uh, from my friends, from my family, from my children. But I kind of shut, shut down and I would just tell people, no, I'm fine. I don't need help. I didn't really feel like I, I you know, I saw a psychologist once or twice just to get some breathing techniques to cope with my anxiety. And for the moment, that seemed to work. But then my health was not great. Uh, to the point where I needed a heart transplant. Um, and that was going to happen in 2013. But they discovered then that I had pulmonary hypertension. So that yeah. basically meant that I was untransplantable. And the only other option they gave me was to have this pump fitted in my heart called a left ventricular assist device, which is basically a pump that they implant into the heart, which sucks the blood out of the heart uh, and pumps it back around my body. And it takes the load off the lungs, so it reduces the pulmonary hypertension.
and then allowed me to be become transplantable. Now that operation I had in 2014, because in 2013, I got given like roughly about 12 months to live. So when I had that operation, I was not well at all. I spent uh, two months pre-op in Birmingham in the Queen Elizabeth in the coronary care unit, which was an absolutely horrendous, terrifying, traumatic experience surrounded just by very ill human beings waiting on the transplant list, people dying, you know, to experience that amount of death and, and trauma was just horrendous. And oh. then when I eventually had that operation, again, so lucky to survive. I was in a coma for two weeks post-op. Uh, but when I was, uh, when I did awaken from that operation, like my reality was greatly changed. Like I was literally half man, half machine. This mm. machine is externally run by a set of batteries. They last roughly eight hours a set after eight hours. If I don't change them to a new set of batteries, that machine will stop. My heart will stop and I could die. So like mm. it was a terrifying reality that I wasn't prepared for. Mm. And again, that recovery process, although when I, it started to heal and the machine gave me a greater quality of life, I still had a bunch of problems that I'd still had from my career ending, from that shame, that guilt that I had mm. addressed, plus now being run by a machine. And the very sure. thought of going into another theater or a hospital would like send me straight into a panic attack. Bro. So sure. it was, you know, that... That two-year period was terrifying, you know, in every single way. But I was grateful, Douglas, genuinely now. Mm -hmm. I mean this, bro. When I left that hospital, when I left Birmingham, Queen Elizabeth, after that recovery, which took about a month post-op, when I woke up, you know, when I went home, dude, I was so grateful. I was like, thank God. Everything I've been through was like, how I'd come out the other side was a miracle, genuinely. And I was so happy, you know, I went home to my family, had my friends, they grouped up, so much support, so much love. But again, hesitant to go ask for help, didn't want it, mm -hmm. didn't want to process the feelings that I was having. I just tried to bury them. Yeah. And that so kind this, of on, another, on another journey. Then. Yeah, because um, there's quite a lot of emotions that you're going through. And there's a lot of situations where you have to redefine what you previously thought about fear about control mm. you, you spoke about waking up and and being connected half man half machine you've got now these devices that are taking away element of your autonomy of your control yeah and as an athlete you know when you've got that ball in your hand rugby ball in your hand yeah and you're, you're looking to to take on your competition there's element of control so mm. how big a deal was it for you to having to surrender Mm. and reach acceptance that your control is going to be limited to a certain, to, to a degree. How did you process that? Yeah, well, terribly. I, I, I didn't process it. Um, I was just stuck because, like you said, you know, boom, like that transition was really fast. It wasn't like a process of months of recovery from an injury. It was just like career over. Mm. And you know, it was the, that identity was a huge crisis because all of a sudden reached a rugby player, you know, that environment that I was so used to that I thought that bubble was never going to pop. I had, you know, another two contracts under my belt. I had agreed a contract 
literally a couple of months prior to move to France. So my life was like planned out for the next couple of years, you know, <laughs> and mm. I knew I was coming to the end of my career, but I still had six years. Mm. Then just like that, gone. So it was a huge identity crisis and one that I, I, I was lost, just so lost. Mm. And then it was like, how can I create this a different identity? And mm. one identity that it was easily you know, easy to cling to was rugby. Obviously, I went into coaching because I just thought, I, you know, this is my sport. This is mm. what I'll do. But then the other one was, you know, I was always a, um, rugby is a, an environment which enables heavy drinking. Mm. It's a culture. So I kind of got, you know, went back to that culture. And although because I had my health, my health wasn't in a good place and my heart was badly damaged, I had like a fluid restriction. I couldn't drink a lot. Uh, two and a half liters a day was my fluid restriction. So I knew like drinking at first wasn't going to be, it wasn't a priority, but mm. that in that environment, I felt comfortable. I could have a few pints, be part of the group, uh, that lad-ish type culture and environment, familiarity, all these types of things. They So that was kind of like what my identity morphed to was like, it was familiar. I knew mm. the rugby environment. I knew that coaching would give me that it would give me a purpose a goal but then also the drinking was familiar and also like i was always that larger than life type of character that like lovable rogue that was a bit wild um so again that was another identity that i kind of morphed into was like you know reese the clown reese the pussy but obviously mm -hmm. that was a transition that took a while because it was all health permitted mm -hmm. slowly with that unintegrated emotions and feelings, uh, especially for that shame and guilt and fear. Like I didn't feel it as that. And I didn't integrate it and I didn't speak about it or project it or, or tell anyone about how I felt, even though my, my ex-wife could see that pain in me and that suffering, <laughs> that, um, you know, that emotional distress, I didn't project it and I just locked it all in. And then mm -hmm. my escape, unfortunately then, went down the wrong road. Sure, sure. Um, in terms of, you know, the culture of, of rugby at the time, maybe it's slightly mm. changed now. I hope it does. The culture of drinking in, mm. in, in, into um, excess amounts, that, that laddish type behaviour. Um, for you, do you feel that the personality that you became mm. in that environment was a different personality to who you really are at your core. Yeah. Are you drinking to, as an escape? Yeah. Or to fit in? Or is that who you felt, who you truly are? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Like, for sure. Obviously, at my very core, you know, with the work I've done now, there was um, an element of, you know, wanting to be accepted. And... Mm. I did that in many different guises, you know, uh, outrageous behavior, try, you know, that ego led pride based type of, I, you know, I can drink this much, you know, you only live once. Mm. Uh, and everyone was like, how do you do it with this machine? And, you know, what you've been through and losing your career. And it was like, oh, it's fine. I'm good. I'm good. You know, uh, when I had that beer in my hand and I had a little bit of that Dutch courage, I was like, ah. Oh. Mm. No, you only live once. That like it was such a it was such a shit approach, but it was a, a trauma response where my whole life I'd escaped 
you know, whenever things were tough or hard or, or I had any emotional distress, like alcohol was there because it was a great escape. I would just, you know, go and get drunk and then I'd just forget about it and move on and not, not actually address the issues, <laughs> but mm. it was mm. like, I thought I was putting it to bed, but yeah. those bad habits then when I was in that situation drove me to then start to escape more regularly, more often, and take more and more unnecessary risks, especially with my health. You know, you know, it just became, it was, it was a progression, a, quite a fast progression, because then with my fluid restriction, I started to drink uh, spirits instead of lager. And then from there, it just kind of went downhill. Yeah. Like, and, and, you, and you speak about, you know, as, as you said, going downhill and the things have a snowball effect and using oh, yeah. an iceberg um, analogy. I think if we take a look at the incident when you have this heart attack, mm. your life now is just completely turned up on its side. How much of the inner resilience that you have mm. was born out of events way before you were a competition ready rugby athlete how much of that was lessons that you took growing up in south africa that mm. that you that you were able to draw upon to get you through this situation because sometimes we don't don't really appreciate life lessons mm. until we get hit by a life-changing event and this certainly was a life-changing event for you mm. i just want to explore with you like how much of of who you are that shaped you the, the reese thomas that was able to change countries um, adapt, you know, how much of that did you draw upon to get yourself through this situation? Yeah, I mean, it, it was at the core, the thing that got me through most of it, you know, like unbelievably resilient, you know, to go through just the career, even from, you know, like you said, leaving SA at, at 18, pursuing my dream of being an international rugby player. I mean, I picked the ball up late at 14, I'm a big believer, Douglas, about yeah, we're a product of our own environment. And from a young age, I went to, you know, I was obsessed with sport. I loved sport. You know, I was super competitive. And, like, sport, like, gave me that vent, you know. <laughs> and that competitive edge, you know, wanting to be the best or whatever I did. Uh, but getting knocked down, but getting myself back up, you know. But then also those environments that I went to, especially my high school. My high school was, like, and I went to a boys' boarding school in Joburg and uh, a good, uh, a well-known sporting school. And like that environment was, in the boarding school in particular, was was a challenge, bro. You know, I loved it. It was like a big sleepover. But at the same time, it was tough because, you know, there was corporal punishment. And mm. if we messed about, it got taken care of. You know, and, and like I said, you know, I was a mischievous, inquisitive, you know, free spirit and but i was also happy to take you know take the punishment when it came because it was an easy out for me to you know, take a lash as opposed to having to write out school rules <laughs> like sign me up bro do you know what i mean yeah so, but that from a young age you could see that those cycles were there but their resilience was built in that environment massively and um, and then leaving the country at 18 to move to abroad to wales 
you know, start a new beginning, get that job, you know, have lots of ups and downs, told I'd never make it, get through that system, get through those age, those junior age grade, international age groups. Um, there was a lot, mate, you know, so it showed itself throughout my career, you know. Yeah, I, I, can, I can see that. And um, certainly for somebody from that's from the Southern Africa region, mm. there's also um, this expectation that men are supposed to be tough, resilient and um there's a lot of alcohol dependency oh. in that culture as well you know oh, yeah. um, how, how have you managed to challenge some of these perceptions as you go around coaching yeah. and you and um how much of that still you believe is playing a big part in why men are struggling in this moment mm. to um to cope to to manage and to sustain their mental health I th a lot of it is is the level of social acceptance of alcohol. You know, we got like there's a bit of taboo around drugs, especially like coming from South Africa. You know, like drugs was bad. Don't do drugs. Um, but I thought, you know, from a young from a young age, I was ex experimented with drugs, like most people, and but alcohol was just there. And I think in South Africa especially and in the UK I mean, that the drinking culture is huge, but it's there. It's, it's mm. we've grown up with it. It's completely socially acceptable. It's everywhere. We've seen that uh, generational type trauma being passed down from in you know, our parents, our grandparents, where they dealt with a lot of their situations through, through partying, through drinking, through, you know, we, we almost made it culturally acceptable that, like, if you did something and you were drunk, it's like, oh, you're okay, he was drunk. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And how much bullshit is that? Mm. So, you, you can see what the Do you way struggle how to prioritize your tasks to achieve your goals? Surely there's a better way. We don't have to land in space to be great. Frankly, we don't need to. But given the opportunity, wouldn't you like to do something spectacular and make an impact? Tune in to the Mike Drop Club, where the secrets behind achieving extraordinary results are shared weekly with your host, Douglas Hamandache. We'll be with you every step of the way, giving you all the motivation to not just live life, but to make life boom. Yeah, but do you find that um, there's a stark difference between um, the view of alcohol and mental health um, in South Africa to the UK? Any, any, any stark differences there? Not really. I mean, it has become quite like, it's quite an ego-driven environment, I find, especially in the rugby circles. You know, it's kind of like, how, you know, how fuck can you get? Mm. You know, who, who's the biggest drinker? No, mm. like drinking games. Again, people absolutely battered to the point where, you know, so it was funny. You know, you had the story from the weekend. Oh, yeah, after the game, we went out. Our thing was puking there. And uh, thing did that. And, you know, but it was just the norm. But, you know, a lot of times it was so funny. But it was like you were laughing at that person because it was, you know, the things that we were doing were so morally off track from yeah. the people that we were at our core, but we, it was acceptable because it was like, yeah, it's fine. It's, uh, 
we were just venting. It was it was it was all in the name of fun. You know yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think that um, you, you touch upon about um, identity. You said it several times about this identity and wanting to be accepted. Yeah, and uh, in a drinking binge, as it were. Mm. And I'm going back to my 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 um, not too distant um, background out drinking. If you a good night was out, a good night was um, evidenced by who got messed up the most. Yeah, yeah. So did you find yourself filling that position so that you're you're also subconsciously make sure that you're being accepted because you're going to make sure that it's a good night for everybody even if it means you are the one that's going to take it to the extremes, to that next level. Because mm-hmm. I guess a bad night is you go out, have a drink, come back home, nothing happened, no yeah. story. Yeah. And I remember you did tell us, tell me a story about one drinking binge that you did um, with, with the lads and had to go and perform the day after. Yeah. Remember that story? Oh, mate, yeah. I mean, it, it, it happened. Do you know what I mean? We'd go out, especially when I was younger, I'd go out on a Friday night, Shouldn't have been game on the Saturday, get mm. absolutely legless, and then perform the next day. And <laughs> you know, it wasn't a done thing. But at that point, professionalism was in its infancy. We had mm. uh, it was still that like, you know, we we you know we drink, but as long as we show up on the day, that's happy days. Yeah, and um, it was almost like a badge. I could say afterwards, they were like, "How did you perform like that today?" You know, on the back end of what you were up to last night. And it wow. was just like, you'd almost laugh at it. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, yeah. And I didn't do it all the time, Dennis. I mean, I, I really, especially in my professional career, it happened a handful of times. But, mm. you know, it is most definitely, it was it was trying to prove something. Trying to, yeah. to like, people please. Or, like, that competition within that environment to be, mm. you know, known for something, even if that meant that, you know, you tried to be the biggest clown or drink the most or do the most outrageous things, you know, get locked up or, you know, do something just mad. So on that note, to be known for something, I really like that. So what's your views on legacy? Like what legacy do you want to leave behind? Yeah, I think for me, the leg, you know, I've got it on my vision board because you know, do I want to be remembered as like Reese, the good guy, who the lovable rogue that was, yeah, he was, you know, he's a bit wild when he'd had a few drinks and was inappropriate and, you know, mostly, you know, unacceptable type behavior, but he was a good guy. Or do I, did I, you know, once I sorted my shit out, mm. was it more like Reese is a good guy, but, you know, was he doing today? You know, he's, he's, is he a leader? Is he a role model? Because I never—I mm. used to think I was a role model. I genuinely did, though, because I believed that, that I was. But, I mean, I was a horrendous role model. Yeah. Uh, it was like, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, yeah. I'd say one thing and then do another. And mm. it was a shocking example for my children because, you know, growing up, it was just, it's, it's what I did because I, it's what I thought was the norm, but it completely mm. wasn't. But once through all that I went through, it kind of enabled me to change my perspective and see that like that was not who I was at my core and that my value system was being penetrated from every angle. Well, I didn't even have a value system. 
or no integrity or honesty or loyalty, any of those things. So when I actually began to align myself with those value systems to live by, you know, my higher values, that's when things started to change massively in my life. And I started to see, you know, not only from my experience, how badly damaged and how, how much denial I was in about my situation, but my, also my behaviors. And that allowed me then to completely change the, it changed the game, the way I looked at life and mm-hmm. saw that there, it's not just me. This is a, a this is not a, a, a me problem. This is a man problem in society right now. And I think man, the men in society today are lost. We mm-hmm. are so lost. No, we don't have a clear identity. It's quite a gray area. And yeah, that's, well, why see, that's why we see this society today, like an almost narcissistic type man. Yes, yes. And you see that part played out across social media. Oh, like yeah. Narcissism, look at me, look at me. And what, in the world that is grappling with attention, though that those people that can get the attention get the voice. You know, there, there's an old saying that the squeaky joint is the, the joint that gets the oil. You know, um, so they've got everybody trying to make more noise than each other, but not being coherent. Yeah. Um, the 80s well, was a, was an interesting time for myself. There's, there's a lot of blockbuster, um, testosterone-driven male role models from Schwarzenegger, Sylvester yeah. Stallone, <laughs> Dolph Lundgren, you know. And then there's, a, there's been a transitional t- um, time when, when men have been encouraged to embrace um, their emotions to be um, supported in crying, asking for help, all of those things. But I still believe somehow, somehow we are not enabling men to have the right space, a mm. space where they can, if they want to shout, shout. Yeah. If they want to burn off some um, um, energy, because testosterone is one of those chemicals that goes through our body that makes us behave in a unique way. Yeah. And suppressing it, mm. I've seen it, this with young people, they can end up, they're not allowed to express how they're feeling and get this energy out, they can internalise that, and that is typified by self-harm, mm. you know. I see a lot more young men um, self-harming, cutting, scratching, um, suicidal ideation, all of these mm. internalised, because there's no outlet, you yeah. know. And, and society is to blame for that in terms of how we prioritize services, youth mm-hmm. centers, all of these. I remember growing up with youth centers, Yeah, you know, um, I do a lot of work in the community and I can tell you my community in Gillingham, there are no active community groups for people to go to both men and women. So gaming is now can be considered a sport. <laughs> um, I talk about computer gaming, but, how, but what are children missing out from being able to actually go out and express themselves rightfully or wrongfully? It needs to be, and it needs to allow an outpouring of emotion. Yeah. So how much how much work are you doing in terms of the one-to-one coaching that feeds into um, allowing people to express how they feel? I know you, you, you present yourself, you're comfortable in your own space, you know, but there was a time you weren't able to express yourself the way you are now. Yeah. Um, what sort of lessons do you um, teach to enable people to get to resetting or reframing their outlook on life the way you have? Yeah. I mean, it's hard, right? Because I felt in my experience, my change of perspective came from hitting rock bottom. You know? 
alcoholism until the point where I needed intervention, goes, went to rehab, and then in that process, allowed me to change my perspective, to see things differently. Because I was buried deep in denial, you know, and the, the processes in which I saw life, the way I addressed life, the way, you know, I, I, I didn't express was the main issue with getting to the place I was, because it was that, you know, we couldn't show weakness. You couldn't show, um, you know, it was so, I don't, there was so much ego and pride that I couldn't allow myself to surrender to, to actually ask for help. So, you know, finding help, admitting, so acceptance was a huge part for me. Accepting that I had been, you know, morally bankrupt to some degree, um, that I had been completely my unauthentic self for so mm -hmm. many years, mm -hmm. but then surrendering to that. Surrender to, you know, what had happened in my past is it can't be changed, Douglas. It's gone. You know, all I can do now is start to live a better existence where I can try and make amends to the damage that I've caused in the past. And that meant was that sometimes that, that process is ongoing, you know, even now with my children, even though we have a, a billion times better relationship, you know, it still takes work because they still have that. It's like a trust thing, you know, like, you know, this is a new type of dad they've got now because they mm. can still remember, you know, old dad, like the mm. wild dad. So that's mm. like a confusing process for them. So it's about consistency then, Douglas. Mm. So this work is, it's ongoing. Do you mm. know what I mean? So yeah. I, try, I try to help people to, to better understand that, you know, until we address those demons from our past, that shame, that guilt, that remorse, until we can process that and make our amends where we can, you know, however that looks to you, and then to then from that point on, kind of, begin to clean the slate, set fresh foundations, but this time set fresh foundations from built on, on value. Built wow. on, built on in, wow. Built wow. On, yeah. I'm interrupting you because at this point, hey you're going to get a ready? mic drop. Yeah. Build a foundation mm. based upon values. Yeah. yeah. And, build, and integrity, build a, brother. And integrity as what the, the cement? Yeah. So, so, so by for, because this is where it ended, for me was the was the was the absolute turning point was forgiveness. You know, I had to forgive myself as well as um, other people mm. that I'd carried grudges with, which were just absolutely aimless, just terrible energy that I was carrying with me. It's like yeah. I heard a great quote about forgiveness. It's like giving someone. It's like giving yourself poison. And expecting the other person to die like it's crazy wow. so when i was able to then because i thought i carry these things with institutions and people but i just forgave that you know and that was it wasn't an overnight process but the longest process from that was forgiveness for myself because during those times where i was lost where i was in my darkest hours mentally you know when i'd been taken to the depths of my soul like it was a it was a deep understanding that my conditioning, my programming, my domestication as a man had begun from an infant and mm. was uploaded into my hard drive. So my behaviors were just like 
they were they were being born from those traumas as a young man and i put trauma in inverted inverted commas it's it can be from small things like rejection not enough attention uh these types of things all the way up to the the, the high end of horrendous trauma but for me it was about that forgiveness and then from that process then getting a routine in my life a healthy routine so new foundation clean a slate forgiveness make amends and then building so from there like what are my values because yeah. but more importantly before i even asked that question it was who the who the hell am i because i had to address my identity crisis because i didn't know who the fuck i was literally yeah. i was like reese the rugby player reese the pussy reese the clown yeah. you know reese the all these different things these images these facades that i had painted all the masks i had worn yeah. they were bullshit so I had to strip back those masks, like layer by layer, mm. until I found myself. And that was, mate, it was, I felt so vulnerable. I, like, I felt I scared, bro. Seriously. Naked. naked. So when I felt naked. And when I was naked, bro, I, like, my instant reaction was build walls. Just like, don't yeah. show the real me. Like, I'm going to go keep mask, 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 you know. But when I got past that initial fear, because when I when I addressed the identity crisis and realized who I was at my core, who I knew all along was in there, a yeah. loving, gentle, um, caring man. Yeah. You know? But and it, I painted a different picture, Douglas. You know, I built this because it didn't fit into the society and the circles that I was playing in. Because I wanted acceptance. Because I feared rejection at my core. That was the reason. Yeah. So when I got past that. And then after my identity and I addressed that and was allowed myself the courage to be the real me, which has yeah. taken, it's constant ongoing work, right? But after that allowed me to address fear, like how, how had fear impacted me? And fear had impacted me in many different ways, bro. Like from a young lad, like fear of rejection, fear of confrontation, to like through my career, fear of failure, fear of judgment through after my ops, fear of death, the fear of the unknown, like all these processes of understanding and self-realization and self-awareness allowed me to start building my identity and understanding, wow, look how fear, and I wrote this out my whole life. I did a life, uh, I wrote it out and all mm. I, I began to see cycles in my life mm. and it was all fear-based almost all my fears had manifested in terrible choices yeah. and when i addressed that and i understood like wow that is where i'm going wrong and then surrendering bro surrendering and just saying like i need to do some work on me right now and that's what i did bro and i i, I downed tools i downed this fake image that i had painted to the world and i started to do the work bro i started to do the work Excellent. Okay, guys, you get another ready? mic drop for that. I'm completely You know, you, you dropped some real um, bombs there, real bombs that will shake everybody to the core. Really, for those of you listening far and wide, rewind that that last five minutes of Reese. You know, that, that conscious stream of thought mm. born out of lived experience is so, so important. You can read books on motivation. You can read books on how to inspire yourself, etc. But lived experience trumps 
all of that. And you're hearing it straight from Reese's mouth. Just want to um go back to this whole point of acceptance. Yeah. They, they say that um the revolution will never be televised in terms of when, when things change state, right? Yeah, yeah. What was it a quiet internal revolution? What did that was it like aha, uh-huh, I get it? Did you come did you rise out of bed like Mumra? <laughs> what was what happened when like you got Tyson Fury from his knockout <laughs> yeah Tyson Fury yeah the rise from Tyson Fury what, what what did it look like I would have loved to be was it a gradual coming to the realisation that you know what I'm changing here and, mm. and I'm going to accept where I'm going yeah. or was it literally as 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 dramatic as waking up after having the heart surgery no. what was it like yeah, dude, my heart surgeries were 2012 and 2014. Mm-hmm. And then I capitulated up to the point between 2016 and 2019, I was an alcoholic mm-hmm. with this machine on the heart transplant waiting list. Complete self-destruction. How I'm here today, Douglas, speaking to you is a genuine miracle. But I crashed my car drunk, 1st of September, 2019. And a couple of months later, I had an intervention whilst on a family holiday where my best friends from school my dad and my half-brother sent me off to a rehab facility in Cape Town. Dude, that experience, those 28 days I spent in that rehab facility was the absolute, you know, ground zero of where my life changed in a nutshell. Like, it was the most unbelievably painful process I've ever endured. But at the same time, it liberated me. It completely transformed the person that you see here today because it broke me down. All my belief systems, all those limiting beliefs, all of that just went bang, chopped mm-hmm. me down in my prime. And it was, it was that, that process then allowed me, like through the process of vulnerability and sharing in that environment through the group and one-to-one therapy sessions, that greater understanding of why my thought process are like this, why do I feel like I do today? And then, painting that picture, journaling, just make un, 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 unbelievable amounts of just putting right. what is in here on paper and then yeah. reading it back to people. Wow. And um, that was that was a huge healing process. And at the end of that 28 days, it was just like something happened. Mm-hmm. I just, I, aw- I awoke. I, I woke up from this unconscious dream that I was been living and I, I became a conscious being. And through that process then was just a, the most, ima- I can't, I can't highlight this enough. It was a, the most beautiful process. I woke up and it, everything changed, uh, Douglas. It, the color, the colors I could see, the, my, the smells, the mm-hmm. taste of foods, my yes. whole diet changed after this. Oh, heightened. And I was so present, but it, mm. it like, almost hurt because I'd never like felt this before. And mm. then, then, but then I had to come home and pick up the pieces because my life was an absolute dog show. Mm. So it was like, then it was facing the reality of the life that I had lived to that point, which mm. was just in a mess. So it cost me my marriage, which was a wonderful lesson because through this process of consciousness and awakening, it allowed me then to see where I'd gone wrong. But my, I still had deeply ingrained behaviors that weren't acceptable. 
They weren't mm. acceptable. And they were going to take time to get up. And that was just too much for my wife, my mm. ex-wife. And she, but her lesson in leaving me was a great lesson, Douglas. Because mm. what it taught me from that point on was I no longer had a victim mindset. I had now a growth mindset. I started to see things not as good or bad, but as lessons. And that mm. allowed me to face the world from a completely, completely different perception. I then started to see like, why are these things, they're not happening to me, they're happening for me, bro. Mm. And then mm. I started to feel my way through the world. And I mm. knew that because I was, I was so invigorated by that experience of healing in the house mm. and being vulnerable and sharing my pain that I was like, I'm going to do whatever the hell it takes and I'm going to do the work that's required for me to heal myself in its entirety, but also be there for my children. Because that was my why. I knew straight away. My why is get going. And over time, my why has become me too because I needed accountability for myself. And through that then, I just I was prepared to do anything. And I did, bro. I did the 12 Steps of Recovery with an, an amazing sponsor. I worked alongside that with a, a, a recovery and a, an addiction psychologist. After that, I did work with a, a guy, a, an NLP, a master NLP practitioner, which was incredible, I might add. I did uh, EMDR, EMPR, I can't remember what it's called, uh, brain spotting. <laughs> um, I did equine therapy, cold water therapy, and then eventually I stumbled upon, across breathwork. And, dude, every single time I thought I was healed, like, I had no idea, bro. It was just layers upon layers upon layers of my entire <laughs> life of stored trauma and experience and unfortunate series of events that I had buried over a long time. It allowed me a healing process. Every time, just growth, growth, growth. Immense personal growth. But it's, you know, it's, it was then, you know, behind all of that was a healthy, regular routine, which allowed me to be where I am today. You know, getting up in the morning, doing my journaling, my gratitude list. And just walking because of my health. I couldn't go beast myself, go to the gym. Just 20, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, sometimes an hour walk on the flat. But being in nature, bro, being around like-minded individuals, good individuals. Like what do they say, Douglas? You are the sum of the five people you you spend most of your time with. You are so much more. MikeDropClub.com make life boom absolutely absolutely and that's my one of the five for day since we've had this conversation first this morning i cannot underscore echo what you said even more yeah. um again just to paraphrase the fact that you were writing down um offloading what was in your conscious in your mind on mm. paper is so so beautiful the fact that you describe what you woke up to as beautiful uh. these are not words that typically men will use uh. but i like the word beautiful yeah my mom always told me the most beautiful name in the world is your own name you know? so <laughs> love that name and find beauty in strange places yeah. if you can wake up in the morning and you find beauty in your surroundings yeah you know that's the excellent thing mm. my second my best poem of all time was written by marion monroe of, of probably one of my early crushes as well but she wrote think in ink right think nice. in ink. you know it's just very simple and yeah. um the fact that you write things down, special things happen. You know, when you can write things down, you mm. slow. It's like meditation. 
Yeah, um, literally steroids. Um, forgiveness. Uh, I like. I like the fact that you've forgiven yourself, and you're going mm. on this journey of self-discovery. Yeah. And what better voyage can you set sail on mm. than a voyage where you are the vessel in the sea of life yourself, and then you're constantly adapting. There's a challenge here. I think we're going to pick up on another on another show. Mm. There's so much. It's so packed with information where you can go through the transformation. It's almost like Scrooge. It's coming up to Christmas, so we can talk about Scrooge. Yeah. Scrooge was visited by three ghosts, isn't it? He changed after seeing himself dead and, and his tombstone in the graveyard. He changed. But the perception people had of Scrooge had not changed. Mm. That in itself is another journey. Yes, you know, but... where people are expecting you to be something that you are not, and they're bonded, and they've, like, for yourself as a career professional mm. athlete, you might have journalists that have made a living out of describing you a certain way, mm. you know? And then you say, no, I'm not like that anymore. I'm not like that. They too have to go through that grieving loss process mm. because they haven't learned to treat and adapt their life around wherever you're presenting. Yeah. So it's a big, big subject. And the fact that you touch upon these various therapies and you're not afraid to talk about that. I think... It can be, it can be so lonely, Douglas. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a lonely process, bro, because when mm. you wake up, you realize, actually, I don't have anything in common with like 90% of the people I spent my time with. What do I have in common with them? Mostly alcohol, because yeah. <laughs> those are the people I'd surrounded myself with to enable my behavior. But then it was the understanding that like I had rugby in common with a lot of my rugby friends, you know, but I, I speak to a very small minority of the human beings that I spend time with pre my awakening. Mm. That is because, you know, that connection was built on an unauthentic self. Mm. So it was that deeper understanding that, you know, now, now I long for community Douglas, because in South Wales, I feel like there's not a tribe here for me. And mm. um, there is individuals dotted all over the place, but there's not a, like, there's not a community of humans where I can go and feel like, oh, this is home. Yeah. Oh, wow. no, that's, home. that's something I'm trying so hard to establish now. Oh, wow, Reese, you're, you're home. And talking to me, that's why I called you brother for the first time I met you because we, we connected. In what we're doing on yeah. social media, the post we put out, you know, we are becoming omnipresent. Mm. The second you press that post button, that post button, upload button, Mm. Our, our ideas, our thoughts, our expression, they're put out there for the universe. And those who connect to that messages form our tribe and we connect to their tribes as well. So physically, we might not have that around us, but I can yeah. assure you, yeah. you know, I, I, on a daily basis, if I don't see a post from you, I'm thinking about you, <laughs> what you're up to doing. If I do see a post and I'm feeling lazy, yeah. you know, oh my God, Reese has done something. I've got to post something now. I don't know how, I don't know what to talk about. Lights, camera, no. Turn on the camera, just roll. Yeah. You know, and, and that's that's what it's about, I think, to help each other um, thrive in the environment that we're in. 100%. You know, um, tri tribalism is very, very important because oh, as yeah. you were talking about earlier, if you're in the wrong network and you're there, if you're not authentic self, you're doing damage. Oh. And even to the people in that group, you're doing damage to that group because that group, there's nothing wrong with them if they're being their, their, their authentic self. 
they found their tribe. They're living the best. They're, they're living their best life. Yeah. But if you are not living your best life and you are are not being your authentic self and you're in that group, mm. that's there's a problem there. Dude, um, and and there in it lies the illusion, right? Yeah, yeah. Like most people, people people think they're living their best lives. Yeah. But they're not even conscious. They don't even know what their best lives are. Yeah. Yeah. So this yeah. in that denial where it lies the suffering. Yeah. So, I was definitely there's a lot of um philosophical lived experience, South African heritage, you know, like just like to know what's get on with it, you know, that I think we need to have another conversation and, and I think this is a part of a series of conversations that we're gonna be having um over of the month because it's mental health awareness month in November. True. So this this podcast was to set the scene for you to understand who the man is, who Reese Thomas is, not who he was, yeah. but who he is. Um, you guys um, take care. I'm going to put Reese to just close your any any closing remarks um, for our viewers. Yeah, just. You know, with Men's Mental Health Awareness Month coming up, like you said, Douglas, I just can't emphasize enough, you know, for for men and, and for gen- people in general, you know, it's just, you know, it's okay to not be okay. I think we all just go through our lives in these habitual cycles of, you know, expectation and, you know, we have so many things that we need in our lives that so stressful the society is so stressful right now mm. and competition all these types of things right but we're so ego based right now just it's okay just reach out speak to another brother or sister whatever it takes do you know what i mean because we can only run for so long douglas and it's time it's time for us to stand up it's time for acceptance of of the situation this society finds ourselves in because we're sick bro and uh but we're here to help absolutely absolutely on that note i can't supersede that reese thomas you know you've been so great and i'm looking forward to our series coming up on the mic drop club um you guys stay safe stay blessed take care of yourselves and each other we out (laughs) yeah thank you for listening don't forget to well check done. out well done. How was that? Yeah, I like it. The show notes yeah. and useful That's links. good. I, 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 I was, yeah. That, that was more than life. what I was expecting, <laughs> yeah, which, is, which is good. I think that's a solid entrance. Oh, and God, I think, yeah. I think what we can...